Good morning. As Mindy said, my name is Dave. My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new here or if we haven't met, I'm just so glad that you're with us this morning. And I look forward to having the opportunity to meet you. Hopefully you can stick around for the barbecue afterwards and we'll get a chance to chat over a burger. You know, maybe you'll relent from throwing a ball when I'm sitting in the dunk tank, you know, or maybe not, maybe not. Um, yeah, but not only just a welcome to everybody who's here in our building, but we just want to say thank you and welcome to everybody who's joining us online at home. For whatever reason, if you're not able to be with us, just know that we're glad that you're joining us, and we love you. We wish that you were here, and we're praying for you. Um, I also want to say uh, a welcome to, uh, to two guests who are joining us from out of country, John Nargan, who has been here before with us. He's an international leader with Converge and Carl Lair. He's the director of global leadership. Uh, they, if you guys want to stand just for a moment, just stand up for a sec. Okay. You could have a seat. And the re you could have a seat. The reason I got you to stand is that if you want to talk to them, these guys work for Converge, which is the missions arm of um, the U.S. branch of our Baptist General Conference. Did I get that right, guys? I got it right. And they've been hanging out in Coquitlam for the last half of the week um, with Ahmed and looking at the things that are happening in the House of Omid. There's really exciting things that are happening there that we get to be a part of as uh, one of the supporting churches and as Ahmed's home church. So it's great. So we're glad that you guys can join us. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can chat some more and get to know you guys better and what God has been up to in the work of Converge. Well, uh, as Aaron alluded to, we are starting a new series for the next four weeks, and it's all about uh, reconciliation. You know, I had an experience a number of years ago. Uh, it was a life-changing encounter with some of my neighbors. Uh, in the townhouse complex that I live in, across the lane, I can see them from my front porch, there, were, there was a couple. Uh, they were bodybuilders, and they owned two large dogs a Rottweiler, and a pit bull. And one day after walking home from picking up my oldest son, who was in kindergarten at the time, the pit bull was loose in the complex. And it charged my wife and my two sons, pinning them up against our garage door with nowhere to go, uh, barking and growling and lunging at them. And the only thing that prevented the dog from from my family was the stroller that my youngest son had been riding in. Now, eventually, after hearing the screams and shouts and barks, the, the husband of this neighbor couple, he came frantically running over. He grabbed the dog and he brought it inside and my, my family escaped to safety in our home. And fortunately, uh, no one had been bitten. But this was still a traumatic experience that have has continued to leave scars on some of us to this day with fears of dogs. But that encounter, it didn't end there. You see, only a couple weeks before this happened, the Port Coquitlam City bylaw officer had come to our complex and had gone door to door telling us uh, that these two dogs had been involved in a violent altercation, that they were now required to be both leashed and muzzled every time they were out. And if we had seen them out and about without the leash and muzzle on, if we would contact the bylaw officer. And so after this encounter, I did. 
But I also went over and I told my neighbor. Now, the husband, he was apologetic about the incident, but he was also unhappy that I reported it. But he was understanding. His wife was not. But an hour later, she was on my front step, shouting and swearing at me in front of my children, but not just my children, but in front of the entire neighbor complex. And it was so embarrassing. It was so unsettling, but not just for me, but for the entire community. You see, for the next several weeks, it seemed like this dark cloud of unease settled over the entire complex. And every time we would leave our home, it seemed that that couple, that they were outside at the exact same time, staring at us, daring us to make eye contact with them. They talked to our neighbors, bad-mouthing me. And then my neighbors would come to me and they would tell me what they were saying. And my neighbors would say, I just wish that they would pack up their dogs and leave. And I got to be honest, I felt the exact same way. Because I didn't see how this situation could be resolved, and it made living in our home intolerable. And then one evening, after arriving home from work, I, I worked at a church, by the way, and I had just led a young adult Bible study all on reconciliation, my neighbor, she happened to be watering her flowers outside her front door. And as I was gathering my things from my minivan, the Holy Spirit clearly said to me, go over there and talk to her. And I said, no way, Lord, she will break me in two. <laughs> and then her husband came out, and I said, see, now it's two on one. The numbers aren't fair. I'm not going. And he said again, go. And I didn't want to. But I had just led this Bible study all on reconciliation, telling these young adults about the lengths that God had gone to to reconcile us and that as his followers, now it is our mission and purpose in life to reconcile others. And so I felt like I had no other choice. And so tentatively, I walked over there and sheepishly I said, can I come over and talk? And then again, I got one of these death stares. And I just desperately said, we're neighbors. We can't go on living like this. And in the next moment, she was crying. And, and I don't even remember what few words passed between us. But the next moment, all I can remember is the three of us were hugging. <laughs> and it didn't fix everything right away. But over the next weeks and months and years, things changed, not just for me, but in our complex. The dark cloud lifted, not just for us, but for the neighborhood. And they became the most friendly couple, and all of a sudden, I was their new best friend. We had block parties together. We were invited over for, you know, coffee and things like that. And the rest of the neighbors, they kept on asking me what I had said, not just to heal the divide, but to change the atmosphere. And quite honestly, I didn't say anything. Nothing that I could remember. I didn't even want to go over there. But I did because God wanted me to. And today we're starting this series all on reconciliation. And reconciliation, it is God's plan to mend the broken relationships of our world. To heal the divides and to lift the dark clouds that have 
settled over our lives. And this work of reconciling, it is to be the ultimate purpose of followers of Jesus. It can be intimidating, hard work that we do not want to do. But this morning, I hope that we see that it is Christ who compels us to reconcile. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. Beginning in verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, this is the word of the Lord. In this passage, Paul speaks a lot about reconciliation. And I suggest that Paul isn't just putting such great emphasis on this because the Corinthian church needed to reconcile, though they did. But I believe that reconciliation, it's what the gospel is all about. In fact, the overarching narrative of the entire Bible is one of reconciliation. First of all, reconciliation means ending the enmity or hostility between estranged parties. So it's establishing right relationships, or maybe even reestablishing them. And Paul assumes that everybody needs to reconcile, that all people are suffering from broken relationships that need mending, that we have all committed wrongs that need to be righted, and that every one of us is experiencing hostility in one relationship or another that needs God's peace, that needs his shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. It's also a greeting. If you were to go to Israel today, you would hear people saying shalom to one another as they greet each other, or as they say goodbye. It's like when I was in Hawaii, everybody said aloha, whether you were coming or going. But the Bible's usage of shalom goes far beyond wishing people a pleasant day. You see, shalom is the longed-for peace of God weaved through every fabric of our lives. It is more than just a ceasefire with those you don't get along with. Rather, shalom is righteousness. And righteousness, it's all about right relationships. And not just between you and some rival, but this all-encompassing righteousness. This peace between you and others, but also peace with yourself. Peace with creation, this world that we live in. And of course, peace with our creator, God. 
But to attain this fourfold peace, we need to be reconciled. Paul assumes each of us have experienced brokenness in these four relationships with others, with ourselves, with creation, and with God. And where does he get this idea that these four relationships have been broken? Well, I contend he gets it from the very beginning of the Bible, from the book of Genesis, which is the origin story of our world, humanity, and our relationship with God. It tells about how everything at the very beginning was perfect, that true shalom was experienced right when God created it all. In Genesis 1 and 2, it describes how God created the cosmos, the earth, and all of the creatures, all the creatures in it. And you see, God made everything good. Creation flourished. It produced in abundance, and it was healthy. And then God, he, he made humans, right? In Genesis 2-7, it says that God created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And this idea that humans are made in the image of God, it not only gives each human life immense worth and value, but like God, when these first humans were made, they were in a good relationship with themselves. You see, they didn't suffer from insecurity or fragility or body image issues or identity crises. Rather, They were confident with who they were because God had made them good. He'd made them very good. And perhaps the phrase that's the most befitting is that they were comfortable in their own skin. Genesis 2.25 says that Adam and his wife, they were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, they didn't feel shame because they didn't feel any judgment or criticism, not from each other nor from a critic within. So being naked is symbolic for being vulnerable. And so this first couple, they were totally exposed for who they were, and yet they were entirely at peace. In the beginning, people only knew peace. Shalom with creation, with themselves, with others, and also peace with God. In Genesis 3, it indicates that the first humans and the creator, they would spend time together that God would walk with them. He would hang out leisurely with them, right? And that there was nothing that separated us from the one who lovingly gave us life. But then it all changed. When humanity decided to no longer trust the creator, but rather to live independently, to take matters into our own hands, and in one fell swoop, all four of these relationships were plunged, devastatingly broken. And now most of you probably know the story that I'm referring to. We call it the fall, where Adam and Eve, they disregarded God's uh, instructions for human flourishing. They disobeyed his commands, and they sinned. Now this word sin, for many of us, it can come with a lot of baggage. But sin can basically be understood as anything that breaks or breaches one of our relationships. Anything that breaks a relationship with with another person, with ourselves. We can sin when we break our relationship with creation and with God too. And in the account of the fall, we see how all four of these harmonious relationships that made up God's shalom that was experienced at the beginning were all broken. So first, Adam and Eve break their relationship with God. 
They allow doubt to creep into their thoughts, believing that somehow God is holding out on them, that he didn't have their best intentions, their best in mind. And so this doubt, it turns into mistrust and which eventually they expressed their mistrust in rebellion. And then this resulted in the second broken relationship, fracturing our peace with creation. You see, when Adam and Eve, they reached for the fruit of the tree that was standing in the middle of the garden, they violated the limits that the creator had put on the humans. These limits were imposed on them for their own well-being, but also for the creation's well-being, so that it could flourish. But with total disregard for creation's care and God's love for it, the humans exploited their position for their own privilege. And this is something that we continue to do today. Later in Genesis 3.17, God tells the couple that because of this violation, the relationship between humanity and the creation would continue to be contentious. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And then we see a third relationship broken. And it broke the peace that we had at one time with ourselves. In verse 7, it says that their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. You see, their eyes being opened means that they became self-conscious. Now, this isn't the kind of healthy self-awareness that is the mark of a mature person. Rather, they became embarrassed they were uncomfortable with who they were, and so they tried to cover themselves up, not only hiding their vulnerabilities from one another, but also from themselves. They were no longer able to see themselves as beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Rather, they only saw how exposed they were and how defenseless they felt. And we have been covering up ourselves ever since. And finally, we see how sin broke our hum the human relationships, one with another. After being called out of hiding, Adam tells God that he hid because he was naked. Then God inquires, like, well, who told you that you were naked? And Adam blames Eve. He says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree. You know, we are prone to shift blame onto others all the time, aren't we? for the wrong things that we've done. And all that does is continues to result in hostility. And just like the human breach of relationship with creation resulted in the earth being cursed, so did our relationship with one another. As a result of their sin, God says to Eve, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Friends, this is a curse. This is not how God intended it to be. This is not how it was at the beginning. You see, men and women, they were made to be companions at the beginning. Co-heirs of creation, designed to support each other. But now, rather than looking to serve and help one another as partners, our relationship has deteriorated into a power struggle where one, primarily men, dominate the other. 
And so Paul can say to the Corinthians and to us that we need to be reconciled because our relationship with creation, well, it's broken. We have also become estranged from ourselves. We live in conflict with one another. And quite frankly, most of us are in hiding from God. But you know, at the end of Genesis 3, God, he doesn't just leave things in shambles. Adam and Eve, they try to fix things themselves, right? They, they get some fig leaves, they sew them together, they try to cover them up, but it doesn't work, right? Because they realize things were ruined beyond their ability to fix them. But in Genesis 3.21, it says that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, they didn't get back the peace that they had before. But rather, by giving them these skins, God gave them comfort and protection that they needed in order to come out of hiding. And by doing so, God also showed that he was going to continue to care for them despite their rebelliousness, that he would continue to help them and that he wanted a relationship with them. But to do so, God had to make a sacrifice. He had to kill one of the animals that he lovingly made in order to cover up the shame of the first man and woman. And that sacrifice in Genesis 3 alludes to an even greater sacrifice that God would make. A sacrifice not just to temporarily cover up guilt and shame, but one that would completely reverse the effects of sin. It would precipitate the restoration of all of these broken relationships, reestablishing our shalom with the earth, ourselves, with each other, and with him. In Romans 5, Paul writes, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, the death of Jesus, God's son, it was the sacrifice that God was willing to make in order to reconcile all of these broken relationships. Like Adam and Eve, we are also unable to fix things ourselves. And when we do, it just comes out like a patchwork of fig leaves that is bound to fall apart. But unlike the animal that God sacrificed in the garden to cover their shame, Jesus' sacrifice isn't a temporary solution. Romans 5, 9 says that we have now been justified by his blood. That term justified, it can be understood as a, a courtroom term, like a legal term meaning to be shown or be proved right. But think about that. Can we have been shown that we were right? Can we have been proved that, that we acted right? No. We were the ones who sinned. We were the ones who did wrong. We are the guilty ones. But justified, it's not just a legal term. It's also a relational term too. And it can mean to be declared or made righteous. And remember, righteous, it's always about being in a right relationship 
And so to be justified, it means so much more than just being legally declared not guilty. Being justified means that through Jesus' sacrifice, we can have our broken relationship with God restored. That we can be in a good relationship with him again. This is huge. This is so much more than just being declared not guilty. It's the difference between my neighbor and I just coexisting and just ignoring the problem that happened between us to all of a sudden, now we are actually having a relationship where we are interacting and caring for one another. That is what God wants to do for us. The good news of the Bible is that this is God's plan for the whole world. Not only to forgive us of our sins, but to restore his shalom to those four relationships, to the beautiful, healthy way that they were at the very beginning, which we're going to continue to explore over the next few weeks. Today, though, we are talking about a reconciled relationship with God. The Bible says that God loves us, he sent Jesus for us, and that if we trust and follow Christ with our lives, that this is how we can begin to live in a right relationship with God. And if this is what you want to do today, I would invite you to do it. I would love to pray for you if you are committing or maybe you're recommitting yourself to living in a right relationship with God. But if we have, 2 Corinthians 5, the the passage we read at the beginning, it talks about, Paul says that when we come to this reconciled relationship with God through Christ, a transformation comes upon us that is life-changing, that it's life-altering. He says that we get in on the reconciliation work that God has started, that we become God's partners, his co-laborers in his restoration project, and that we can't help ourselves from getting involved, Paul says in verse 14, because it's Christ's love that compels us. His reconciling love for me, it not only helped me to overcome my fear, but also it is what propelled me to talk to my neighbor when I didn't want to. And his love, it does even more than that. In verse 16, Paul says that it changes how we see people. He says, we no longer regard them from a worldly point of view. Before following Jesus, Paul himself, he viewed some people from a worldly point of view. There was a whole group of people called Gentiles. These were non-Jewish people that Paul, he had no time for. In fact, he saw them as sinful, dirty, and undeserving of God's love and grace. But when he encountered Jesus, it changed everything for Paul, specifically how he viewed this group of people. He then devoted his life to reconciling Gentiles to God, and he no longer viewed them with the same stereotypes and the prejudices he did before. He didn't regard them from this worldly point of view. Rather, he now saw them as brothers and sisters, children of God, who the Heavenly Father loves and wants them to return home to him. And so when you and I follow Jesus, it also needs to transform the way that we see others as well. A good question for us to ask ourselves is, who are we regarding from a worldly point of view? Chances are there are individuals or certain groups of people that we see with prejudices, 
Do we reduce them to certain stereotypes? The answer very likely is yes. And so we each need to ask Jesus to give us new eyes to see others how he sees them. Paul then tells us more about this transformation that overcomes us. He says when we're reconciled to God in verse 17, that if anybody is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And so the gospel tells us that it's not that we've just been forgiven. It's that in Christ we get new life. We're born again. So when we become this new creation, we also receive a new mission and a prime objective in life. Three times Paul says in the 2 Corinthians 5 passage what that new objective is for us. Verse 18 All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And so when we come to faith in Christ, we're not just exchanging our sins for forgiveness, but we're exchanging old lies for new ones. And this new life, it has entirely different purposes and goals from the lives we were leading before. As Christ's ambassadors, we now represent him to this world around us, proclaiming the reason that Jesus was sent, that God is reconciling this broken world, and that he is not counting people's sins against them because of Christ's work on the cross. And as his diplomats, we now present God's peace treaty to the world informing the world that God is in the process of restoring his shalom and that in Jesus, all can live these transformed lives. I love how John Rukiana, the former bishop of Rwanda, puts it. He said, I knew I had to be committed to preaching a transforming message to the people of Rwanda. Jesus did not die for people to become religious. He died so that we might believe in him and be transformed. I'm engaged in a purpose and strategy that Jesus came to earth for. My life is set for that divine purpose in Jesus Christ. I was called to that, proclaiming the message of transformation through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're wondering, but is it really my job to go around proclaiming this message? Isn't that the pastor's job? See, we're all called to this ministry of reconciliation. Regardless of our vocations, it doesn't matter if we're a student or a professional, a retired or stay-at-home parent. You know, when we come to faith in Christ, all of our primary mission is to participate with God in his reconciliation project. However, we are not all called to carry out that ministry in the same way or to be ambassadors in the same places. And so, your participation in God's reconciliation project will likely look very different from mine. We need, we need to remember that God is in the process of restoring all of our relationships. Not only our relationship with him, but also with the creation, with ourselves, and with others. And so there is a lot of work to do. So this means that when a person is at work conserving the earth, they're standing up against the inequitable use of creation. They're teaching others how to be environmentally conscious. That is a part of God's reconciliation work. 
when someone sees a counselor or a therapist to courageously do the God-honoring work of reconciling with themselves the work that God wants each of us to do, they are also participating in Christ's renewal of all things. When you or I try to resolve a conflict with a neighbor or maybe help friends at church forgive one another, or perhaps we walk in solidarity with oppressed and marginalized people, these are also ways that we can represent Christ and bring about his reconciliation. As his ambassadors in this world, we should participate in all four areas of the reconciliation work that God is in and wanting us to do, and not just one of them. But too often I hear this debate amongst Christians about whether our work is to advocate for justice by promoting a social gospel or to or commit our lives to the saving of souls through evangelism. But you see, the Bible never makes this separation. In 1 John 3, the apostle writes, If anybody has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? He goes on to say in chapter 4, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You see, in God's reconciliation project, there is no gap at all between evangelism and doing justice. As Andy Crouch says, neither of these can exist in any serious way without the other. Both are about restoring God's image. And so both evangelism and justice are necessary for his work of reconciliation. So we are going to continue to talk about this over the next four weeks. Um, but I would say in actuality, I think this is a part of every sermon that we preach here. Because reconciliation, as I said before, it is the grand narrative of the Bible. It is the work that God is up to. And I would also suggest that it is also a part of your work and your home life because as followers of Jesus, we reconcile because it's Christ's love that compels us to do that. Reconciliation is hard and it's slow. It's costly. It could cost you time and money and comfort, maybe even your reputation. For Jesus, it cost him his life. As Desmond Tutu says, true reconciliation, it's never cheap, for it is based on forgiveness, which is costly. And for someone who has suffered injustice at the hands of another, reconciliation can seem unfair, and it is unfair. It's head and shoulders above unfair. It's grace and it's mercy. It's the best of what God gives. And you and I, we are most like Christ when we work towards reconciliation. And it's his love that compels us to do it.